Welcome back to CityPod, the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 2, which continues our topic about religious change. Today, you'll hear from Martin Percy, the Dean of Christ Church, University of Oxford. All right, thanks, Martin, for meeting with me today to be interviewed for this podcast. It's a pleasure, Derek. I want to just start off with a very broad question about uh, your own interest in cultural change. So could you just briefly explain what drew you to thinking about cultural change? Well, interesting cultural change goes a long way back uh, to when I was doing my uh, doctoral work on contemporary fundamentalism and realized that a lot of expressions of fundamentalism were culturally relative. Um, they expressed the uh, social concerns of the time, uh, power, authority, uh, reification, lots of things like that. Uh, healing, um, you know, the immediacy, the sort of, you know, the therapeutic intimacy of God. These sorts of things began to make me really realize that uh, if society was changing fast, then so was religion. And uh, around about 2002, I, I, I wrote a book, um, it's really a book of essays, which looked at the question of religious resilience, um, trying to really see whether there were constancies in religion that though buffeted by uh, cultural tides and winds, nonetheless remained stable. Um, and I think my conclusion in that book was that there was a lot of stability, you know, history repeats itself, that kind of thing. Um, however, um, I think more recently, I've begun to think that uh, the cultural change that the developed world is witnessing is really changing religion and people's habits of engaging with spirituality and faith much more rapidly than we had uh, really thought through. It's not that the world is becoming more secular. Um, I mean, in some ways it is, in many ways it isn't. Um, you know, the 21st century is a, it's a religious century so far, I think, uh, in terms of what's developing. But institutional religion is, is clearly uh, taking something of a battering. Uh, and spirituality, including personal and individual spirituality, is really rising. So, with those changes um, that are happening within society, what do you, what what would you say the push and pull is for um, that change being uh, something that's kind of a felt need or uh, something for for people to enter into? I mean, in in some ways, it would make the most sense if we never changed. Uh, because things would be much more predictable, um, no matter what you know situation we find ourselves in. So when do you feel like that we have that need to change generally? And then I want you to, uh, if you could speak, uh, why would we change religiously? 
Mm. So um, I think the division between you know the sacred and the secular, between uh, you know religion and public life, it, it, it's never the same in country by country in the developed world. It's different in Canada and the U.S. Different from France, Spain, England, and so forth. Um, but there are some interesting common denominators. Um, I think uh, consumerism um, means that people uh, naturally expect to have choices and exercise those. And uh, the realization that they have choices uh, and can and can exercise those means that they've got some sense of entitlement. So if they're not satisfied with a product, a service, or a faith, <laughs> they can do something about that. Um, in a way, I think that they probably felt that they couldn't quite do something about that perhaps 200 years ago. The information revolution is clearly something that uh, uh, religious faith is now grappling with uh, because there are multiple authorities. I mean, just as the printing presses enabled Luther's revolution in the 16th century to really take off. You know, the middle-class printers could reprint overnight every tract that was confiscated. So it, it became hopeless, in a sense, to try and have the monopoly on knowledge and therefore the monopoly on power. It could no longer be done. In exactly the same way, I think the internet means that people can now um, access um, alternative truths, um, they can put together their own assemblage of faith. Um, they can, if you like, faith check uh, what's going on in their own denomination or religion. Um, they can check out things that are alternatives. They can do the, all of that without, without going on very lengthy journeys. So it's perfectly possible for somebody to sit at home and ask questions about Buddhism um, without really knowing any Buddhists and without actually having ever been to a Buddhist temple or attended any Buddhist yoga, and go quite a long way into Buddhism, um, and through um, you know, social media platforms like YouTube and so forth, uh, begin to explore this, um, more or less in the comfort of their own private home as an individual. Uh, that, that's an enormous change in how people can accommodate and assimilate religion. It's an opportunity for religion, of course, because it means that you know things that were once in the shadows and you know perhaps minorities now have an opportunity to emerge into being more public. But it really does challenge the sense of monopoly that some of those faiths once had on the public domain. The other thing that's changing, I think, is uh, as with the information revolution, so with globalization, uh, and with uh, increasing sort of um, uh, pluralism and uh, integration into society, people are now acutely aware that um, alterity is their neighbour. You know, I mean, Sikhs are no longer just in India; they're in the next street, maybe the next house. Uh, they're, they're folks that you know your your kids play with their kids. Um, this is now a very different world, and I think that means that. The millennials that we're observing are generally more tolerant, more open-minded, um, less likely to rush to judgment, and much more likely to make evaluations and judgments um, on the basis of, of, of the quality of what they know 
rather than, should we say, propositional uh, didacts that might come from somewhere else. One of the things that I find that is very interesting is that it seems within Christianity, and I mean this would be uh, more broad, I mean to, to other religions as well, but I'll stick to Christianity for this uh, particular insight and I'd be interested in your uh, comments on this. So in the U.S. and from what I know in Europe and in the U.K., there are a lot of Christians concerned about change, um, largely change dealing with uh, people leaving the church. But it also uh, strikes me that uh, Christians in the Global South are also concerned with change. Uh, global South meaning Africa, uh, Latin America, places where Christianity is, is, is finding a resurgence. Uh, Christians are, uh, churches are growing. Um, that it seems that you know they're concerned with change like well, what does this mean to become more established um, how do we con continue to uh, accommodate for all those coming to faith both of those are um, both of those are concerned about change but, but how does that impact uh, kind of the kind of the approach so I guess uh, let me just walk this back just a little bit. If you were to look at most of the writings that deal with change in the church in the U.S. and perhaps in the U.K., a lot of that has to do with what does the church, how does the church need to change to become more attractive to Christians to encourage them or, or those who aren't Christians to become Christians to fill in the church because there's a great concern with all denominations uh, about the about people leaving and not converting. Um, but when we look at the global south, it appears um, that there's a lot of growth, especially through Pentecostal religions, uh, which you would have a, a, a background in, in research in. Um, how does that, that uh, those two differences, both dealing with change, um, how do how how, do, how does that get reconciled when you look at like Christianity globally? Hmm, it's a great question, isn't it? Um, I think built in uh, to most major world faiths, but let's just take Christianity here um, as our primary example. Um, is um, adaptivity and reflexivity, uh, the capacity to change. Um, Christianity is only a global faith because it, it learnt to accommodate Gentiles uh, and it found um, an authentic theological, spiritual rationale for that because it realised that you know, uh, the revelation of, of God as, as the early Christians saw it, the very early ones, who were just Jewish. Um, followed through, in a sense, with uh, the story of Jesus, realising that actually the one that they followed and worship had spent an enormous amount of time um, with people who were not Jewish, um, had found faith in them, 
um, and had affirmed that. And the early experience of the early church was that uh, congregations could grow and could be faithful uh, beyond you know, the tribal and ethnic identities of Judaism. So a change in adaptivity is there, and you, you look at those extraordinary passages in Acts where this is, to begin with, incredibly disruptive. Uh, because what does it mean for food laws? What does it mean for where Christians worship? If they're not in the temple and they're not in the synagogues, well, where are they going to be? And what do they do? Um, and once you uh, begin to realise that, um, under the leadership of Paul, but you know, other uh, disciples, evangelists, uh, apostles, this is essentially an evolving adaptive faith then you begin to see that um, it's never been static at all. Uh, you know, the coming together of the scriptures, you know, what we now know as the Bible, is, is a slow process of discernment that takes around about 350 years. Uh, the evolution of the creeds, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, similar sort of length of time. The evolution of doctrine, um, you know, takes actually a little bit longer and in a way is still evolving. And Christianity, where, wherever it goes, um, a bit like a sort of, you know, uh, a seed in soil, um, there's a synergy between the seed and the soil. Um, it produces something that's distinctively local and yet clearly related to its original parent DNA. Now, do I think Christianity is unique in that? Uh, no, um, because you know there's Western Buddhism and there are all kinds of expressions of, of Islam which, which don't depend on its um, uh, original source. What I think is an issue here is the amount of change and adaptation that a faith can cope with in a culture that is rapidly changing and changing in a way that governments, civilizations, countries, states and communities can no longer control because the combination of individualism, technology, knowledge has enormous implications for power. And if knowledge is power and everybody's got a lot or a little bit of knowledge or their own knowledge, uh, it means that no one anymore is really as in charge as they once were with how that evolution takes place. I think, Derek, as well, it, it, there's a bit of me that says, historically, this was what the Reformation was in Europe. Um, essentially, um, a trade-off between knowledge and power, um, and a reconfiguration of powers as a result of knowledge no longer being in the hands of one individual institution. And if I'm right, and cultural commentators are right as well, we're now in an information revolution, in a news revolution. Um, we're therefore in a revolution of knowledge, and it's not surprising we're in a power revolution. Uh, that's got to have enormous implications for all religions, because um, they can be redefined uh, by smaller groups of actors who don't need to take their authority, particularly from 
the authority that they might have had to rely on uh, just 50 years ago. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does make me curious, though, as uh, I've shared before, um, you know, I do work, uh, research with millennials, and you do research with millennials, and all of this information is as quick as the internet uh, for them, but in, in my experience, um, there seems to be not as much uh, taking advantage of all the information with religious queries that, um, that, that you would seem. I mean, in, in some ways, it seems like things have been internal, internalized so much that whatever uh, bits of information seems to fall down primarily through conversation with others and seeing things. Uh, a person tends to just kind of incorporate that, uh, kind of mix it in with a soup, and then uh, some way adjust, uh, I mean, adjust to what well, this is my spiritual mm. identity, which I think is one, maybe one of the reasons, uh, of many reasons, that Millennials especially are uh, more comfortable with the term spiritual and not religious um, because it seems to have a little bit softer sides and um, and maybe I don't have to quote a certain text, biblical text, theological text, uh, go through a certain uh, membership study. Uh, I'm really thinking of this uh, quite quite a lot just off the top of my head here. How does how does this strike you with that millennial push with all of the information that's available? Sometimes there's so much information that a person's not sure exactly what to grab onto. My sense of millennials is that they're um able to um, assimilate their knowledge faster. That's what technology has done. Um, and I, I think that inevitably uh, leads to um, a quicker uh, set of evaluations taking place about whether to be part of something, whether to join something or not. Um, the other thing that uh, sociologists uh, like Grace Davy and uh, David Martin and others and myself talk about as we say, well, um, our age is also post-institutional. Uh, and it's not that people don't join things, they do join gyms, they do join up for phone contracts, but there's clear evidence that people are less inclined to join a trade union or a political party. Um, if they do so, it's very seasonal. Um, usually only a random movement, something like that. Um, and what we find, I think, therefore, is people will get behind what I might call um, episodic causes, um, which might be um, ecological, it could be political, um, it could be a particular um, aspect to do with uh, justice or peace. But it doesn't necessarily follow that they then join as a result of that, one of the major charities or political groups or 
uh, non-government organisations that have been lobbying for change or pushing for something. So it's it's testing time, I think, for those institutions uh, because they find themselves, as all institutions must, committed to perpetuating their values from one generation to the next, quite independent of the popularity of those values. Sometimes they they strike gold because it exactly chimes with where millennials are, young people. Uh, sometimes it's a struggle. And I think when we look at churches at the moment, for example, uh, we see quite a lot of niche popularity. So some contemporary praise and worship genres of worship in evangelicalism uh, are very attractive to um, a significant segment of young people. Some forms of traditionalism can also do that too. Um, there is then that squeeze middle, um, which you know may not enjoy any popularity for a while, but strangely, of course, might in 10, 20, 30, 50 years' time, I think. So I think the intriguing thing about millennials is that they are, um, you know, I've intimated this in um, some of my writing, um, they're moralistic, um, they're kind, they're more therapeutically attuned than perhaps previous generations, um, but they may not be people who are committed to joining something and seeing it through thick and thin over a considerable period of time. Um, and uh, that, I think, poses some challenges for um, institutional religion. Yeah, I've, I've recognized significant changes even since I was growing up in the in the 80s, uh, in the part of America that I lived in the South. It was most common for people to have some identity uh, with a denomination or a specific church, whether or not a person actually attended that church or not. So they would say, oh, well, I'm... Baptist or I'm Methodist yeah. or I'm, yeah. you know, and I, you know, my church is this. When you would ask some more specific questions, well, who's the pastor there or um, mm. how much do you attend? There, there wasn't a lot of knowledge, but it seemed to mm. be important to be identified, broadly speaking, with, with Christianity. Um, that impulse is largely missing. Mm. Um, in the interviews that I've done, and I'm sure uh, in the interviews that you've done too, um, what I've, I've noticed is that even if a Christian millennial attends church on a weekly basis, they're very reluctant to identify it with any uh, specific denomination mm. um, or even look for specific theological um, impulses within that church uh, that, that might identify them. So one of the games I'll play with uh, students often is to see if they can figure out well, well, what theological tradition has influenced the church that you attend. And I'll ask them questions about uh, modes of baptism. I'll ask them if they have ever seen mm. uh, uh, a female pastor, mm -hmm. um, and you know these things begin to whittle things down a, 
a little bit, and very often um, they're they are a part of a specific tradition that they're more more comfortable with, but yet they don't want to name that position. Mm. Um, in in the UK, even back in the eighties, would there have been more of an impulse for someone to identify as Anglican at that point, or was that going back even an, another generation? Um, I think we began to see in, um, I mean, I mean, the story in the UK, I think the church attendance is, is again, uh, amongst the young, is one of, um, you know, as, as young people have, have gradually sort of, you know, should we say gained more, you know, I mean, uh, uh, youth clubs and have, have declined in popularity in the church. Um, and we've begun to see uh, a deterioration anyway in identity through affiliation, which I think is the point we're really making. Um, it's more important now for people to uh, identify themselves. So they might say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Uh, they don't need to uh, root their identity in a particular tradition, um, and that's 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 been changing for the last, I would say, uh, uh, certainly fifty years. It's it's, it's a post-war development, um, and it's not just millennials; it's it's their parents actually, uh, who you know shifted from saying, "Well, my you know my father or mother was a Methodist, so I am." Uh, the generation that really began to break this within the 1950s and 60s, who were saying, I'll, I'll just go to the church that you know, really suits me the best. Um, and and it's, 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 it's changed rapidly since then. Very good. So the last question I have for you uh, today is, so your early research uh, followed largely the Jesus People movement as it kind of matured mm. through Wimber. Mm. Explain that shift, or why, why, what was the impulse in the 1960s or so that kind of drew people to this movement to develop a more uh, conservative, largely, um, liberal in the sense of where the institution fits in with things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, just uh, tell me a, a little bit about your early mm -hmm. research. That's a great question on which to end. So um, I think like people, you know, um, religions are always studies in contradictions. And what we have, I think, in uh, the Jesus people, like that sort of Jesus movement, is something that on the one hand is free association and hippie-ish, and um, you know, uh, outside the institution, and seemingly very free indeed. Um, and on the other hand, is rock solid and conservative, theologically, in so many ways, um, and is a return uh, to uh, a form of uh, rather safe religion, which is uh, sheltering people from. Um, elements of modernity and arguably liberalism too. That's not the whole story. I think the other story I think that the Jesus movement 
for the Jesus People movement tells you is that um, it's back to my first point really about cultural relativity. These things occur at this time because they're possible and plausible in a wider culture. And you see that in those address, uh, the folk music that these people adopted um, and recalibrated into Christian worship. You see exactly the same thing going on in the 70s and 80s, the um, beginnings of sort of uh, more mainstream charismatic evangelicalism, but slightly soft, adult-orientated uh, rock-type music coming into worship. So it's, it's got a beat, it's got a thump, um, it's got pace about it. You see that in the structures of these movements. And I think when you, the time you get to Wimber, you really do see that the things that people were culturally absorbed by in the 1980s, which was uh, power, intimacy, healing, change, um, and to some extent, um, underneath that, a kind of demonic um, warfare going on, which was you know, very socially spread out into things like child protection and very many other things. Along comes an expression of Christianity that, that captures all of these things. And for a while, of course, is, is inevitably very successful because the cultural tropes that people are absorbed with have been captured by uh, a movement which has a, a plausibility structure that's feeding off those tropes and is very, very close to uh, what, what, what culture is, is doing and what, is, what its anxieties are. I think healing is, is really significant actually in this because I think a lot of people took a therapeutic turn in the 1980s and I think what we saw in the Vineyard Movement was a church that gave you that therapeutic turn in a sacralized way. Thank you for your time. Pleasure Derek. Great to have you. Thanks to our guests who joined us for this episode. And thanks to all our listeners. Please share the link in this podcast to your friends, family, and colleagues. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. CityPod is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Special thanks to Lily Baldwin for her editorial work.